Father, we invite Your Spirit now to teach us. Lord, I believe that Your Word does not come back to You empty. I believe, Lord, that as we sit together in this service and in the next, as we worship our way through the Word, as we hear and consider what it is You've done, what You are doing right now, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be, Father, infused with the truth. That Your Word will be like the rain and the snow and like the seed. And all together would implant in our hearts and grow and, and, and be nourished by Your Spirit. I pray, Father, from the, the most faithful among us to the one struggling the most, that we will all hear You this morning. And we will see what You have planned for this purpose for this time and we bless your name and praise you thank you for your word that you bring to us help us to hear now in jesus name amen acts 24 24 but some days later felix arrived with drusilla drusilla deville i'm sorry his wife who was a jewess and sent for paul and heard him speak about faith in christ jesus But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Now, Felix was the governor of Judea. At Caesarea, where the governor spent most of their time, as Pilate had been uh, 27 or so years prior, Pilate was governor of all Judea, right? But he was in Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, presided over the trials of Jesus. Well, now Felix is in that position, that procurator position. And he is in Caesarea, which is headquarters for the governor. He was the one there when the Apostle Paul was first brought to Caesarea and imprisoned there, as we've been studying and talking about. But now as the prisoner speaks to the procurator in verse 25... Specifically about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Note that the Bible tells us Felix became frightened. People don't like to talk about judgment. People don't like to think about what might come. And Felix's fear is such that literally he trembled. Frightened is in phobos in the Greek from the word phobia, but emphobos means to tremble in fear. He shuddered like old Scrooge. But the response of Felix is even more haunting than Jacob Marley and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future all rolled into one. His reaction, his response to hearing about this message of the judgment to come was to fear, to tremble, And that trembling panic caused a tragic postponement. As Felix said, when I find time, I will summon you. When I find time. Last week in my house, an alarm began to sound. We were sitting in the living room, David and I, and and all of a sudden, and then it stopped. And then, and it was driving me nuts. This had been happening for a couple of days. We would hear this go off, and no one really knew where it was or what it was, and then we just kind of forget about it. And then the next day it would happen again. And finally, on this third day, David and I are in there, and I said, well, what is that? And I realized it was a travel alarm, not a bomb, which I was thankful for, but a travel alarm that was somewhere in the house, a cabinet, a corner of the living room, 
And we began looking for it, but every time we looked for it, the alarm stopped. Of course, you know what the problem was? We just couldn't find the time. (laughs) Who can, in this or any season, find the time? My daughter Hannah and her husband Josiah, that bum, came in last night. (laughs) Flew into Seattle. I went down to pick him up. Cheryl went to the ballet with Naomi and Anna Marie. I mean, it was just, it was one of those days crazy. The vacuum is going, we're running around, pulling our hair out. Who can find the time? It just seems to be such a precious commodity that is running so short these days. But Felix, 2,000 years ago, couldn't find the time. Felix says, when I find time, and that deferment of the truth is so typical, it's as typical today as it was back then. When I find the time, or maybe we'll talk about this another time. Well, with that as a backdrop, and we're actually going to come back to Felix and think this little vignette through and see what happened and consider these things more in a couple weeks, but it's Christmas time. So we're going to leave Felix looking for time, and we're going to go into the timing of God. And I want you to think this morning about the timing of God, and I want to show you some things that I think are absolutely stunning to consider. So turn in your Bibles from there over to the book of Galatians, a couple of books to your right, a couple or three or four, just keep going right, you'll hit it. Galatians chapter 4. The book of Galatians, we will actually get to in the several months into the new year. It's a book that that Paul wrote to the churches, multiple churches in the region of Galatia there, which is mostly Turkey and, and parts of Asia today. And so Paul wrote this letter there, but in the letter he makes this statement, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of the time came... God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, or Daddy, Father. When the fullness of the time came. I love that statement. That phrase is how Paul described the first coming of Jesus. When God the Father sent Christ the Son. The word fullness there is a good translation. It's pleroma in the Greek. The fullness of the time. It speaks of, in the common Greek, the filling of contents. So, for example, like in a basket, filling up a basket to overflowing with grain, or or filling up a a water barrel or cistern till it's overflowing with water, that's pleroma. The word was used in shipping for a boat that is completely filled up, cargo and crew to overflowing, and then heading out to deliver its contents, a pleroma, a filling. It also means... And it's used as the consummation of something, the pleroma of a marriage, the consummation of a marriage, or the pleroma of a birth, the consummation of a pregnancy. And so pleroma is the word he uses when the fullness, when the pleroma of time came, God sent forth his son. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he began his public ministry, Mark chapter 1 verse 15, he said, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. 
The first coming of Jesus was the consummation of the fullness of time. You could, you could say the time was ripe. Well, I've been thinking about that this week. The, the timing of God. And how He is always right on time. He is never early. He is never late. He is always right on time. You see, He's the great I Am. So being the great I Am, He is always present. He can never be late. He always shows up right on time. 2,000 years ago was the fullness of time. Why? Well, first of all, we've got to consider the fullness of prophecy. The fullness of prophecy. The word prophecy, you all, you Bible students especially, you know, it's not a weird word for someone's guess way back in time that might be fulfilled one day, might not. That's not prophecy. Prophecy is that which is spoken that has come true or will come true, absolutely. Prophecy is an assurance of God of something that's going to happen. He says, I'm the one who speaks the things of the end from the beginning. The fullness of prophecy. God sent forth His Son in the fullness of time. How do we know? Luke chapter 1 verse 26 tells us the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. To a virgin engaged to a man who was named Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. Gabriel comes to Mary. The same angel Gabriel by name appeared 539 years earlier to the Hebrew prophet Daniel. Well, how do you know that? Well, Daniel said he did. Well, how do you know it was the angel Gabriel and and how do you know Daniel was legitimate? You be the judge. Gabriel gave Daniel one of the most time-stamped prophecies in all of history and it's stunning. Some of you know this, but we're going to review it real quickly. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 The angel said to the prophet, So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, from the issuing of this decree, until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. Mysterious language of prophecy. Why mysterious? Because God, speaking to Daniel, would tell him later, I want you to seal up these things. They're not going to make sense right now. They will make sense later. As they find their fulfillment, and in the end of times, when people look back, they will understand, but right now, seal it up. It's not for this present time. So 539 years before Christ came, Daniel gets this message from Gabriel the angel saying that from this certain decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah, there would be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. The word sevens there is a heptad. It's Shavua or Shavuim in the Hebrew. And it speaks of 69 total units of seven, actually 70, but we're not going to get into that final seven. 69 units of seven, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens, right? 62 plus seven is 69. So there will be 69 sevens, which turns out to be exactly 483 years. Because those sevens are seven year periods. How do you know that? Well, it's fascinating. On March 14th, 445 BC, we know this historically, a Persian king by the name of Artaxerxes gave a decree, the only decree in history that was specific to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. He gave the decree to his cupbearer, a Jew by the name of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was sad one day. Artaxerxes says, what troubles you? And he said, just that I'm here, and while my my, my land lies in ruin, 
and my people in waste, and, and the king gave this decree. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But again, history confirms that date, March 14th. Again, 445 B.C. Exactly 49 years, that is seven sevens, the first seven sevens. Now stay with me because remember, the angel said there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. He divides it up. There will be seven sevens. The first seven sevens, or 49 years. Seven times seven is 49. Jerusalem was rebuilt. Just as the angel had declared, the angel went on to say, in times of distress. And Nehemiah and his followers and his people went back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the wall and rebuilt the city. In times of distress, 49 years later, it was done. Now, if Gabriel was legit... Another 62 sevens for that total of 69 should lead us right up to the appearance of Messiah. Right? Well, what happened? If we take the lunar calendar, which you need to because this was given to a Jew, Gabriel to this Jew Daniel, the lunar calendar, 360 days in a year, if we adjust for leap years, and people have done this, it comes to a total by number of days of 173,880 days. There's your number. 173,880 days is the same as the 69 sevens, or 483 years. If we begin March 14th, 445 B.C., the date of that decree, and go forward 173,880 days, or 69 sevens, or 483 lunar years, we arrive at April the 6th, A.D. 32. Well, what happened on April the 6th, A.D. 32? On that day, a Galilean rabbi rode on a donkey into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey as the people proclaimed, Hosanna, God save us. On that day, and it's a particular day, the only day in Jesus' ministry where He completely received and invited the worship of the people. Messiah declared on that day, what they said when they said, Hosanna in the highest, was not something you would say to anybody but Messiah. And the people knew this. And they proclaimed Him to be Messiah on that day, literally 69 sevens from when the angel said it would happen right on the day. Time is perfect. But go back further than that. 1,100 years before the prophet Daniel, old Jacob gathered his sons on his deathbed and began to give each one of them blessings. And they're fascinating, interesting blessings. Genesis, Genesis uh, 49 and, and 50, if you read through those, they're strange. And then old Jacob, he comes to Judah. And it turns out as we look at these blessings, they are packed with prophecy. Things that he said, that he spoke over these 12 sons, that we would watch play out over Israel across many generations. Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob said, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49.10 Now again, some of you are very familiar with that. Let me be very clear. Shiloh means the one to whom it belongs. The one to whom it belongs. That is the scepter 
which would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. The scepter belongs to Shiloh. And the old rabbis have long understood and believed Shiloh to be the Messiah. Because the scepter belongs, the rule of Israel belongs to him. The scepter was and is symbolic of self-rule. The scepter, that, that picture of authority, of self-governance. But the scepter departed. In an interesting situation, Josephus, the historian, tells us in 12 AD, the Roman procurator Caponius stripped the Jewish ruling council of its powers to rule, especially and including the right to capital punishment. Which is why they couldn't execute Jesus themselves. Or at least they were not supposed to. They had to hand him over to the Romans to be sure this execution took place. The Talmud records that on that day in 12 AD, when this rite was stripped, when you could say the scepter departed from Judah, the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling party, put on sackcloth and began throwing dust in the air and putting ashes on their head and walking the walls and the ramparts of Jerusalem, wailing and crying out, Woe to us, the scepter has departed from Judah and Shiloh has not come. Prophecies not fulfilled. Woe to us. They understood this to be literal. That Shiloh must come. Messiah must come before they lose authority. Well, they lost authority on that day. They were shocked to think that perhaps God would not keep His word. Well, they failed to recognize on what was called the Day of Wailing was a 12-year-old boy named Jesus was that day sitting in the temple speaking with the priests, astounding them. Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. Shiloh had come. They just didn't know. He was right there in Jerusalem that day, right under their noses. Now put those two prophecies together because it's what I would call the messianic window. It had to open, the messianic window had to open before Judah lost self-rule 12 AD. Shiloh had to come before that, getting in that messianic window. But it had to close before Jerusalem itself was destroyed, which is part of Gabriel's prophecy to Daniel. Had to open before they lost self-rule and close before Jerusalem was destroyed, which gang puts it in an amazing light. From Jacob to Daniel, the prophets declared that the Jewish Messiah had to be born before 12 AD and declared then on April the 6th, 32 AD and then had to be cut off and die before 70 AD. And there's only one person in all of history who fits that window and that's Jesus. It is remarkably precise, to the point, in the fullness of time. Do you see how prophecy declared, this is when it will happen, and that's when it happened. And there's so many other prophecies that that support that. Put some of these together. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The prophet said, The Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel which in the Hebrew means God with us. Well, that was spoken about 750 B.C. 
Micah chapter 5 verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Micah prophesied about 500 years before Jesus came. Hosea the prophet, chapter 11, verse 1, said, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15, Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now I choose those four prophecies because taken together, you wonder how can that possibly work? That's bizarre, that's obscure. You've got this, this picture of a virgin birth and then you have, it, it has to happen in this little town of Bethlehem that is so small it's not even considered among the clans of Judah and, and yet out of Egypt, the Bible says I have called my son and furthermore there's got to be weeping in Ramah. Bethlehem, Egypt, Ramah, what's going on here? And if you open your Bibles, and we won't do it right now, but read Matthew 1 and Matthew 2, he puts it all together and shows you exactly how every one of these things took place in the birth of Jesus. Isaiah 7.14, a virgin gave birth. Mary gave birth to Jesus. That's been debated, but the Bible is absolutely clear. She was a virgin, would be a virgin. Joseph knew that she was a virgin. Mary knew... Fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Who, who could prophesy the coming, the birth of Messiah in Bethlehem and yet it happened? What about that Hosea verse 11 verse 1? Out of Egypt I've called my son. Well you know the story. They fled Bethlehem after the Magi came and they fled down to Egypt. And from Egypt they were called back up to Nazareth where Jesus would grow up. Out of Egypt I have called my son. You see how it all just starts to fall together? And of course, Jeremiah 31.15, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Ramah is about six miles north of Jerusalem. And when Herod decreed the death of all the children, the slaughter of the innocents of the infants, that would take place in about a 12-mile radius around Jerusalem, which would include Bethlehem and Ramah. And there was bitter weeping at the time of the birth of Jesus. It's remarkable, the fullness of prophecy in the fullness of time. The fullness of prophecy points to the exact date and time and coming of Jesus. And again, there was no one else at that time who possibly could fulfill all of these. And by the way, over 300 more prophecies related to the first coming of Jesus. And he fulfilled every one literally perfectly in the fullness of time. Okay, but why? Why did God choose the first century? Why not now? I mean, this would be a cool time for Jesus to come the first time. Why not wait until we had technology and He could just send out a, a, you know, a tweet to everyone. I'm here! He could get on the national airwaves. You know, he, he could be on all the Sunday morning talk shows. He could make the rounds. Good morning, America, you know. Why the first century? Well, consider this. It was not just the fullness of prophecy. It's also what I would call the fullness of polity. Polity. Polity, what do you mean? Political organization. 
You see, God knew what was going to be taking place in the first century, and it became the perfect time for Him to birth not only His Son into the world, but the church. Why? The political organization called the Pax Romana. The peace of Rome. For the first time in history, to that point, Rome established a brutal, hard-fought, but successful global peace. A world peace. And with that peace came a new polity. And with that polity came a new series of policies that literally changed the civilized world. Let me just give you three examples. A common transportation system. Rome saw to it that there were common highways that would travel between countries and nations and nationalities, modern thoroughfares that vastly increased trade and and commerce and travel throughout the empire. It's like traveling in the United States, and we take this for granted now, but you can get in your car and you can travel down south from here through Oregon to California and no one's going to stop you. You can head east and go across the United States. You can go state to state to state. And you'll see a little sign, welcome to this state. And you cross the state line, no problem. You could not do that before Rome in the Middle East and in Asia. You came to one country's borders and you were stopped. And there wasn't the kind of travel that was dispersed and grown, especially under the authority of Rome. And they would have Roman soldiers posted at all of these different places, different outposts as you cross from one country to another to be sure that you could have a free crossing. That was a new thing. This whole common transportation system. Now listen, by some estimates, the Apostle Paul traveled in his ministry life over 15,000 miles by land and by sea. Historians tell us this would have been absolutely impossible if Jesus had come, if the church had been birthed after the fall of the Roman Empire. Because when Rome fell, so did the transportation system. You could not move that easily throughout the world, all the way up until modern times. So transportation alone made the first century the ideal time for God to send forth His Son and for His Son then to birth the church. There was also common circulation. Common transportation, a common circulation, that is a global postal service. Suddenly now letters could be easily sent across borders once again from place to place, person to person. 2,000 years before Amazon.com, before the Sunday deliveries that have been taking place this holiday season. And we still have, and many of you are holding in your hands, the circulated Gospels. Letters, just letters, written by Paul and James, Jude, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke. These guys who wrote these letters and they were circulated among the churches and among the people and because of this vastly increased circulation that came by the Pax Romana, the Gospel spread like wildfire. It could not have done that prior to Rome. Nor after the fall of Rome. A common transportation, common circulation in this full political reality and a common communication. And I think this is so cool. It wasn't Latin. Praise the Lord, hallelujah, because who wants to really learn Latin, right? It wasn't Latin. That was not the common communication of Rome. It was Greek. Alexander, whose mother said he was great. He spread this this communication. He wanted the whole world to be Greek. And after Alexander, it was said that all the way from Britain to India, people spoke Greek. 
It was the common language, accepted and expected by the Romans as well, worldwide. And you know what's remarkable about the Greek language? Whereas the Hebrew is, of all languages, Hebrew is the most picturesque. It is very colorful. It's, it's, it's very graphic in its, in its use. The words are pictures. But in the Greek language, it is the most precise language in history in terms of concrete thought. And God made sure to declare to bring His Word in both the Hebrew and the Greek. The Hebrew to give us the pictures and the, and the larger understanding, that Hebrew mindset, and the Greek, the Western mindset, which is more critical thinking, reasonable, processing. And God made sure the New Testament would come in this language. And by the way, now even the Hebrew Scriptures had, by the first century, have been fully translated into Greek. The Septuagint is what it was called. Perfect timing. The Pax Romana. It was heavy handed, but it worked. Luke chapter 2 verse 1. Let me just read this to you. Luke chapter 2 verse 1 says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. I love how Luke begins that picture because you have Caesar Augustus, you have Quirinius, these big guys, these were the guys on the front page of the news in the day, and then you have Joseph, a guy named Joe, went up to Galilee from the city of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger. And again, you know the story. But that picture is remarkable because of the Pax Romana, because of the expectations of Rome, because of even this census prophecy was fulfilled. Caesar Augustus didn't know what he was doing. He had no idea that he was sending the prophecy to Bethlehem to be born. Thanks to the Pax Romana in the first century, all of this was able to take place right on time, just as the Father had prophesied. You have the fullness of prophecy, and you have the fullness of polity. One more thing. The fullness of perplexity. In the first century, and I know this is a very, very simple kind of blanket way of saying things, but you could basically boil down the entire known world to two people groups, Jews and Gentiles. Oh, I know there were a lot of people groups, but in terms of God's view of the world, there were the Jews, his chosen people, and there was everybody else, the Gentiles. And both Jews and Gentiles in the first century were absolutely Perplexed. There was a Jewish confusion going on, gang, by the first century. A struggle to understand what God was doing, what was going on. You see, 750 years before, Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah prophesied that in the days of King Hezekiah, who was a good king in the manner of of David prior to him 250 years earlier. So 750 years before Christ, Hezekiah's king... Oh, by the way, did you hear about the Hezekiah Bula? Those of you who watch these things about... Well, last month, end of last month, in Jerusalem, they discovered what's called the Hezekiah Bula. A Bula is a small imprint. They found imprinted in clay a 2,700-year-old Bula on it that says, this belongs to Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah. It's the first literal tangible proof outside of Scripture that we have of Hezekiah the king. At least in terms of hard... There there were other writings and stuff of his existence. But the first that we have right there, and it was found on the south side of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem this November. When Hezekiah was king, Isaiah prophesied, this child is going to be born to us on the throne of David. Well, Hezekiah was of the throne of David. So an even greater king than Hezekiah is coming. Isaiah prophesied, he said... But that was 750 years ago and in the first century the Jewish people are saying, When? When, Lord? You said this was going to happen. Your word declares it. When? Tell us. It had been seven centuries since Isaiah prophesied. Ten centuries since King David was personally promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that there would be an heir to his throne. It had been 539 years since Daniel was told by Gabriel of this Messiah's coming. It had been 520 years since the prophet Zechariah gave his awesome prophecy of Messiah the branch who would rebuild the temple. He would branch out Zechariah 6, 12, and 13 from where he was and he would build the temple of the Lord. Well, you know what was happening in the first century? The temple of the Lord was under a major retrofit by a guy named Herod. Trump can't... I mean, Herod can't possibly be (laughs) the guy. Uh, That's not... That's so unlikely. It can't be Herod, but he's the one who's... He's the one who's refurbishing the temple right now. What's going on, Lord? By the way, how many of you remember what Zachariah's name means? Zachariah, son of Berechiah, son of Edo. It means the Lord remembers, the Lord blesses at the appointed time. At the appointed time. In the fullness of time. But again, first century. It had been over 400 years since any prophet had spoken in Israel. What people called 400 years of deafening silence. Where are you, Lord? You said you'd come. And there's not a word. And at this time, messianic expectation in Israel among the Jewish people literally had reached a fever pitch. You want to talk about the right time for the Jewish people? The first century was it. A rabbi, 19th century Zionist leader named Abba Hillel Silver said the following. Prior to the first century, now this is a Jewish man, not a messianic Jew, not a believer in Messiah or in terms of Jesus, but 
a Zionist Jew, said, prior to the first century, the messianic interest was not excessive. The first century, however, especially the generation before the destruction of the second temple, A.D. 70, witnessed a remarkable outburst of messianic emotionalism. When Jesus came into Galilee, spreading the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and saying the kingdom of God is at hand, he was voicing the opinion universally held that the age of the kingdom of God was at hand. He was tapping in, this rabbi is saying, Jesus was tapping in just to the emotion of the people in the first century. He said the Messiah was expected around the second quarter of the first century of the Christian era. The Jewish people expected him then. Now, I jokingly mentioned Donald Trump's name, but this rabbi, from his perspective, would say Jesus was no different than what Trump is doing right now, and that is tapping in to the emotionalism of the right in our country. Some are very concerned about that because his tapping into the emotionalism, the anger and the fury and the frustration of the right against the left and the division of our country is why he's so high in the polls and yet people are saying unelectable. I'm not going to judge that. God is going to put into office who he wants into office. But, but, it's an interesting thought that in the same way Trump is riding high in the polls because he's tapping into this, this furor among conservatives in America, so this rabbi says that's just what Jesus was doing. The messianic confusion and fervor among the Jews was huge. 400 years of silence. All these prophecies saying that a Messiah was going to come. Where is he? The desire was at its highest point. And Jesus come in saying, the time is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you've got to know the people right and left are going, yeah, that's what we want to hear. Drive out Rome. Toss out this, this oppression. Bring in the kingdom. Right in the first century when Jesus came. Now, if it was just that Jesus was an amazing speaker, we would not be here this morning. Remember, we've already covered the prophecy, the astounding prophecy that it is impossible for anyone to have fulfilled, and yet Jesus did. And Jesus had no control over the polity of Rome. And the fact that because of Rome's rules and policies, that the gospel itself could spread like wildfire for the first time in history? Unless he was God and intended it to be so. But it wasn't just that the Jews were confused in the first century. There's another issue going on, and it was a Gentile corruption. When God sent forth his son, Rome was already rotting with decadence and despair, both discovering this mixture of violence and sexual immorality and failed gods. Failed gods? Yeah, all the provinces of Rome had their gods who had failed to protect them from Rome. And so all the people of those provinces who who were conquered by Rome were going, well, we prayed to our God to save us and He didn't. And now we're under the oppression of Rome. Jews were saying the same thing, by the way. Where's our God? Where's our God? And in the Gentile world, there was this confusion mixed with decadence, mixed with with despair, dissatisfaction, discouragement. And Paul addressed it, interestingly, to the Roman church. Let me just read this to you. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Paul said, They did not see fit 
to acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. And being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice, they're gossips. They're slanderers. They're the 24-hour news cycle. (laughs) I added that. He said, they're haters of God. And insolent and arrogant and boastful and inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Wow, that describes our world today. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they did not, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now oftentimes we read that and pastors will take that and say, just as I said, that's the state of the world today. And it is. But that's not what Paul was talking about. Paul was talking about the first century. He was talking about the very world that the Roman church, those Christians in Rome, were living in every single day. What he described was the depravity that surrounded them. And so in the first century, the Gentile world was corrupt and the Jewish world was confused. All of this was going on. By the way, Paul also says in Romans chapter 2 verse 1, Therefore, speaking to the Jews, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you judge, you who judge, practice the same things. You'll see this when we get into the the letter to the Romans. The first chapter, he introduces the worldwide corruption. The second chapter, he shows how the Jews following the law failed to do so. And the third chapter, he brings it all together and says, no one's righteous. No one's good enough. Which is why Jesus came. Come back to the first century. This was all happening right then. The fullness of prophecy, the fullness of polity, and the fullness of perplexity in the world, that was the world into which the Prince of Peace would come, did come, in the fullness of time. We could go on and on about this. I told Cheryl this week, the problem with doing topical as opposed to just verse-by-verse exegetical preaching is there are so many rabbit trails you don't know where to stop. I cut down a bunch of them. But I wanted at least to give you a sense that God's timing was perfect. Not only prophetically, but also worldwide. What was going on in the hearts of Jews and Gentiles, what was happening in the policies of Rome, all of this made the first century the perfect time for God to send forth His Son in the fullness of the time. But i got to show you one more thing this morning. Go back to Galatians chapter 4. Because in considering the fullness of prophecy and the fullness of polity and the fullness even of perplexity, I want you to take this one home. And that is the fullness of the progeny. The fullness of the progeny. The offspring, if you will. Watch this. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 again. When the fullness of time, the pleroma of time came, as we've talked about this morning already, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that, watch this, He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. 
Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Daddy! Father! Abba! Verse 7 says, go on, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Now tune into this. God has given a gift. A marvelous, wonderful Christmas present for His children that will blow your minds. But you've got to get some theology to know it. To understand it. Let me say something. I'm going to say this twice because I don't want anybody to miss this. It is not by adoption that we become the children of God. Again, it is not by adoption that we become the children of God. You are not adopted into God's family. Not a one of you. It is not through that process that we become God's children. And you can't find a single verse in the New Testament to prove otherwise. We are not adopted in. What are you saying, Rick? How, well, how then do we come, become children of God? How did John say? John chapter 1, verse 12, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in His name, who were born, listen, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. How do you become a child of God? You are born again. That's not adoption. That's birth. That's new birth. It's new life. And that's how you become a child of God. Jesus said in John 3, verse 3, Truly, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Adoption papers won't get you through the door. Only live birth. Live spiritual birth. John chapter 3, verse 5, Truly, truly I say to you, Jesus said, unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the Spirit, spiritual birth, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again. Oh, that's what you born again people say. It is, truly. But it's not because we are so special. A born again person is just someone who said, I receive you, Jesus. It's nothing you did, it's nothing I did, it's no righteousness on our own. It's not that we finally got good enough and figured it out. No, I just said, I need Jesus. I believe in you, Jesus. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Born again. You must be born again. And once reborn, you are then a child of the living God. And that is not adoption. Well, Rick, you said I can't find it in the New Testament, but it's right here. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5. He sent His Son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might re- He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There it is. Yeah, but you don't become a child of God by adoption. What is all this adoption talk about? It's about the fullness of the progeny. Now get this. Adoption in the Greek, that specific language is huiothesia. That would be a good word just to kind of learn. Huiothesia. Huiothesia specifically, get this, describes a son of inheritance. Not birth. Inheritance. And that's the gift. You become a child of God by being born again. But once born again, there is this promise, there is this gift. It's wrapped, it's under the tree. It is the promise, the fullness of progeny. 
Romans 8.15 uses the same word. And by the way, this word is used five times in the New Testament. Huiothesia. Romans 8.15 You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of huiothesia. Adoption as sons. By which we cry out, Abba, Father. Paul says in Romans 8.23 Even we ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our huiothesia. Our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Romans 9 verse 3 Speaking of Israel, he says, I wish I myself could be accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, Paul writes, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, the huiothesia. By the way, Israel is in, still awaiting their adoption, will be receiving that adoption in days not too far off. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5, Paul said, He predestined us to huiothesia, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. And note that phrase, huiothesia, one word in the Greek, adoption as sons, used five times, and five is the number of what in the Bible? Grace. The number of grace. This gift is remarkable that both Jews and Gentiles alike can become the huiothesia of God, the sons of adoption, and we are not yet. I sit here before you this morning and I can declare and claim absolutely I'm a child of God. I was born again. My salvation is secure because of what Jesus did, not because of what Rick did. However, I am not a fully adopted son yet. The fullness of the progeny is yet to come. We're looking forward to it. What did Paul say again? Romans chapter 8, verse 23. We ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption, our huiothesia, our adoption as sons. Some of you ladies may be sitting there right now going, well, what about the daughters? <laughs> Listen, don't change it to adoption of daughters. If I have to be the bride of Christ, you have to be the sons of adoption. All right? Understand, the adoption of sons, especially in Hebrew thinking, was the firstborn inheritance. It was what the firstborn came into, the fullness of the progeny. And no other sons and no other daughters, no other kids got it like the firstborn got it. And yet our firstborn, Jesus Christ, stands up and says, I want to share the huiothesia with you. I want you all, sons and daughters, to have the adoption of sons. It speaks not of your sex, it speaks of your position. And if I were a woman, and praise the Lord, I'm not, but if I was, I would read this and say, I want the adoption of sons. It's like the daughters of Zelophehad. You remember that guy? Zelophehad's daughters, who they, they had no brothers, their father died, and they were in Israel going to lose their inheritance. So they came to Moses and they said, what's the deal here? We shouldn't lose our inheritance just because we're women. And Moses took it to God, and God said, you're right, the girls get their inheritance, the adoption of sons. So male or female, regardless of of where you are this morning, physically, spiritually, you have this amazing gift waiting for you that is going to come in its fullness, the fullness of the progeny, the adoption of sons, the huiothesia. 
And as, as assuredly as Jesus came into the world in the fullness of the time, He will return in the fullness of all time to bring to all of us the Theophysia, the adoption of sons. And that is the gift. And it is absolutely remarkable, it's mind-blowing to me, that He came in the fullness of time so that He might redeem those who are under the law, recognizing our sin, aware that we're not good enough. He wants to redeem us anyway, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Daddy, Father. And so we now are crying the same thing, Abba, Father. We are waiting for our full and complete adoption. That's the adoption finalized. Hasn't been yet. We're in process. The paperwork's going through, but it's not quite there. I wonder in this world in which we live if, if there's not just too limited a view of Jesus. Even in the church, I think sometimes the view of folks is limited as to who Jesus is and what He has really accomplished. What this really all means, when we come into that fullness of progeny, the adoption of sons, when we finally see Him, there's going to be a stunning, I'm convinced, a stunning awareness among followers of Jesus in that moment of, I had absolutely no idea that this is what was waiting that this is where I was headed. I thought I did. It's like when I was not yet a father. I thought I knew what it meant to be a parent. I didn't have any idea. I don't have any idea right now other than what the Word tells me and it excites me, but I still cannot conceive. And I think there's too limited a view here. A family was out viewing Christmas displays. Mother and dad and a little boy and a little girl. And as they walked from display to display and they began looking, they came to this, this house that every year put up the same display, a manger scene. And they're looking at the manger scene and the little baby Jesus in the manger. And the little daughter looked up at her dad and said, Dad, why is Jesus the same size this year as he was last year? <laughs> when is Jesus going to grow up? Good question. When is Jesus going to grow up? The problem is not that Jesus missed the fullness of time in His first coming. It's that too many people keep Him in the manger. Don't allow Him to grow up. Don't allow Him to be seen for whom He is. They fear, I think, fear the full-grown Christ. The baby we can deal with. It's cute. It's an interesting little story. We can do it once a year and then move on with our lives. But Felix trembled before Paul and said, When I find time, I will summon you. He was afraid of the message, the judgment to come, the preaching of Paul about Jesus Christ freaked Felix out. And he said, I I I can't deal. When I find time. Precious people, listen. We stand this morning on the precipice of the fullness of all time. Of the completion of all things. The fullness of prophecy. (laughs) Everything the Bible prophesies that needs to be fulfilled before Jesus calls His people home has been fulfilled. There's nothing else that has to take place before His calling. The fullness of polity? (laughs) 
We're living in an age unlike any other in history where time, information, and yes, desperation is moving faster than it's ever moved before. The fullness of perplexity, need I say anything about that? In the world in which we lived, is this world perplexed? People asking, what's the solution? Is it Trump? Is it Hillary? Is it Putin? Or are you like Felix, Putin it off? <laughs> Did I tell you all? I saw a, a picture on, on Facebook, this was months ago, cracked me up of a cracker and Putin's face right in the middle of it and underneath it just said, Putin on the Ritz. <laughs> When I find time, when I find time, I pray this Christmas is your time. I pray you don't put off, like Felix, what is imminent, what will come. The end of all things. It is time to be born again. It is time for some to return to Christ Jesus before Christ Jesus returns. It is time to start looking forward to your adoption, the progeny, the fullness Because again, in the fullness of the time, God will send forth His Son. God, Your Word is remarkable to me. And as I said, we could just sit here all afternoon and go prophecy by prophecy by prophecy and see fulfillment after fulfillment. And it's it's to a degree, Lord, ear-tickling. I pray that it would go beyond that, be heart-changing. I pray, Father, for all gathered here, right now and in the next service, that there would be, Lord, no fear, no hesitation, but a receiving of the truth that You so particularly and so specifically laid out across all these many years. Bring us to faith, Father. Increase the faith of those who believe. Bring faith to those who don't. Lord, I know you don't want us to fear. Because your word says perfect love casts out fear. And there is no fear where the love and forgiveness and grace of God is known. So Father, give us your grace this morning. Pour out your truth. And just give us the willingness to respond. In Jesus' name, Amen. We'll stand together. Rachel's going to lead us in this song. If you need to come forward, you need to be born again. You need to come back to Jesus. Please come forward this morning. Let's sing together.